welcome back to Dan the Ripper. I'm your host, James Macbeth Dan. This is episode four, a man, a plan, a dam, Manapori. In this series, I'm diving into the history of hydroelectric power in New Zealand, looking at the impact this technological shift had on the country's growth and development. In the first episode, I looked at some of the early schemes and the first foray of the government into this sphere. Episode two looked at a couple of larger schemes in the period between the two world wars and the social changes brought by both the availability of power and the organization of the labor who supplied it. In episode three, I discussed the post-war consolidation of hydropower and how both power and dams played a major role in shaping New Zealand's post-war drive towards modernity. In this episode, I'll be considering the power station at Manapori, the largest in the country. It was a project fraught with challenges, from the remote location and hostile climate, to the vagaries of supplying power for international industrial clients, through to the emergence of opposition to the project and the awakening of a popular environmental movement. An international consortium wanted to build an aluminium smelter in Southland and wanted the government to build the scheme and supply them with cheap, reliable energy. Though the terms of the deal and the name of the company have changed over the years, the Bluff Aluminium Smelter and its owner, Rio Tinto, are still a political issue every couple of years. Lake Manapori is in Fiordland, about 160 kilometres from Invercargill. It was identified as early as 1904 as a potential site for a hydro scheme. The lake was formed by glaciers in the Holocene period, more than 10,000 years ago. It is the country's second deepest lake, with a maximum depth of 444 metres. It is 178 metres above sea level, which means that due to its depth, it goes well below sea level. As well as its size and depth, Manapori's location made it a unique proposition. It is about 10 kilometres from Deep Cove, a branch of Doubtful Sound. The lake's elevation above a sea that is just a dozen kilometres away was potentially very powerful. And just a note on the use of feet and metres, I would usually just convert everything into metric as it makes much more sense that way. However, the discussion around the levels of the lake was conducted in feet as it was playing out before New Zealand went decimal in 1967. So while I've converted most of the sizes and distances into metric, I've left the discussions around the lake level in feet as that was the language in which the argument was conducted. The potential for using the water stored in the lake and the fall down to the sea at Deep Cove was identified as early as 1904 in the report of Peter Hay that was discussed back in episode 1. However, the scale of work required was always going to make this an ambitious undertaking. The first potential proposal to harness the power of Manapori was in the 1920s. There was a proposal to set up a fertiliser factory at Milford Sound and to harness the power of the Bowen Falls. After a public backlash, the company behind the fertiliser factory turned their attention to Manapori to power their operation. The Department of Public Works wasn't all that keen on the idea, but they still sent a team to assess the potential of the area. The team spent three summers from 1925 in the area, surveying a route from Manapori to Deep Cove, as well as another route from Lake Tiano. In 1926, Mr Hunt from the fertiliser company was granted water rights, which he assigned to New Zealand Sounds Hydroelectric Concessions Limited. G.P. Anderson made another inspection in 1929, tramping with a geologist over to Deep Cove, then travelling by boat up to George Sound, and then tramping back to Tiano. His final report said there would be little to gain from raising the levels of the lake by more than 20 feet, and that this way 
the great natural beauty of the region could be protected. The company brought an American engineer over in 1930 to perform his own site visit. He reported back that the scheme would cost too much. The company tried to petition the government for assistance with funding, but there was little interest. And with the Great Depression and then the Second World War, nothing much would come of it over the next two decades. Following the war, there was growing interest in aluminium smelting. To create aluminium from bauxite ore, aluminium oxide is dissolved, and then the resulting molten solution is electrolyzed. It consumes a huge amount of electricity, and access to cheap electricity in bulk from a completely reliable source is absolutely crucial for an aluminium smelter. In 1952, the engineer-in-chief at the Ministry of Works, C. Turner, initiated preliminary investigations into smelting aluminium and the power it would require. This was the first time that major changes in the level of the lake were envisaged. Though no developments had been announced, the groundwork was being laid. In 1954, the Director General of Lands was asked to ensure that no land below 690 feet above sea level in the vicinity of Tiano be sold. Tiano might have to be raised 15 feet, Manapori by as much as 100 feet. With the government looking to retain the land around the lakes, in case it might have to be submerged at a future date, these purchases were the first public acknowledgement of the possibility of the lake level being raised. Though no decision had been made, concerns were raised about the lake being raised by a number of groups. There was a change of government in 1957, with Walter Nash leading the second Labour government. There was a push to diversify the economy, to reduce our dependence on agriculture, and to encourage the growth of other industries. An aluminium smelter seemed to tick a lot of these boxes. Consolidated Zinc discovered a large deposit of bauxite in Australia's Cape York Peninsula, and shortly after this, made an approach to the New Zealand government about the possibility of a smelter. In 1958, Turner was in talks with Camelco, the company that had been formed by Consolidated Zinc and British Aluminium to develop the bauxite. The initial request was for 200 megawatts, with the potential for this to rise to 700 megawatts. Turner was very keen on the scheme, making a trip to Australia in May of 1959 to pursue the idea. Consolidated Zinc were also considering other locations for the smelter, and Turner seemed keen to make the deal as sweet as possible for them, so they would choose New Zealand. This included offering them all water rights for the lake until 1961, and the possibility of raising the lake by up to 100 feet. A proposed investigation into a power station and smelter proposal was announced in September of 1959. By November, concerned conservation groups were meeting with Minister Watt. This meeting recommended the establishment of a nature conservancy body. There was an election looming in 1960, and establishing such a body became the policy of the opposition National Party. They won the 1960 election, and in 1962, the Nature Conservation Council Act was passed, with the first Nature Conservation Council set up in March of the following year. In January of 1960, the agreement was finalised with the government allowing Camelco to investigate the potential of the scheme. It also granted the company water rights, and exclusive rights to develop Manapori power for the next 99 years. The story was broken by the Evening Post, and immediately outraged conservationists. They were even more incensed when they learnt that the power station itself would be built inside a national park, a breach of the 1952 National Parks Act. The company agreed to respect the scenic attractions of the area, and to carry out the project in a manner that would respect them. Just two months later, Forrest and Bird presented a petition to the House of Parliament with more than 25,000 signatures, 
asking that the agreement with Comalco not be validated. It also requested that the lake levels not be changed and that the National Parks Act be amended to incorporate safeguards against commercial exploitation. The petition was rejected. In October of that year, the Manapori Tiano Development Act was passed without division. The Act confirmed the agreement between the government and Comalco. It required development of the first 100 megawatt block of power by June of 1971. It permitted Manapori to be raised by 93.6 feet to match the level of Lake Tiano, and that Tiano itself be raised by 13.6 feet, bringing it to 676.6 feet above sea level. Financing the project was the next issue to tackle. The San Francisco-based Kaiser Aluminium became an equal partner in November 1960. The following year, Kamalko asked the New Zealand government to guarantee its overseas borrowing, which the finance minister dutifully agreed to. Despite government guarantees, funding for the power scheme and the smelter was not able to be found, and in 1962, the government became responsible for the power station part of the project. Also in that year, Consolidated Zinc merged with Rio Tinto in what was one of the most significant acquisitions for the conglomerate that is now the second largest mining company in the world. The new company retained Comelco's rights to develop in New Zealand. The government and Comelco continued to negotiate terms, though the deals always seemed to favour the latter. In July of 1962, they came to an agreement in which Comelco retained their advantageous power pricing, even while the government took on the responsibility for building and running the power station. In January of 1963, Comalco exchanged their water rights for access to continuous power, with the smelter getting 4.8 100 megawatt blocks of power running at 100% load, while the government would take two 100 megawatt blocks at just 60% load. That year, the Manapori Tiano Development Act of 1963 was passed, again without any division in the House. This fixed a minimum and maximum level for the lake. The construction of the Manapori power station was a massive undertaking, featuring highly complex engineering, vast amounts of materials and earthworks, and carried out in some of the most challenging conditions in one of the most remote and hostile environments in the country. The location, unforgiving climate, and rugged terrain provided considerable transport difficulties and made for extreme working conditions. A dam, the Mararoa, was to be built 13 kilometres down the Waio River from Manapori, which would raise the lake and incorporate the Mararoa River into the scheme. However, unlike the other power stations that I've featured in this series, the Manapori power station isn't a dam, though the principles are the same. Water races down penstocks before driving turbines, which generate electricity. However, the penstocks, powerhouse and tail race tunnels are all underground, rather than built into a dam. The intake structure is at the head of the west arm of Manapori, with vertical penstock shafts that drop the water down to turbines in an underground cavern. The discharge from the individual turbines is recombined before entering a long tail race tunnel that heads into Deep Cove. The government contracted out various parts of the project, with Betchtel getting the nod for the design and supervision contract. A consortium formed by the Utah Construction and Mining Company, along with two local firms, were awarded the contract for the powerhouse cavern, the installation of the initial four units in the powerhouse, the long tail race tunnel, as well as the Wilmot Pass Road. 
The Wilmot Pass Road is the only piece of road in the country that isn't connected to the rest of the roading network. Its peak is 671 metres above sea level and is named after E.H. Wilmot, who noted it in 1897 and was later the Surveyor General. It is a 21 kilometre long unsealed road that is used to connect Deep Cove to the Marapori Power Station. Through the construction process, it was critical for shifting equipment from the deep water anchorage at the cove. It was decided that it was cheaper to build this road than it was to upgrade the bluff Marapori Road, which would have still required equipment to be ferried across the lake to the worksite. The build was immensely challenging, with the route carved out through the incessant fjordland rain, with swampy conditions on the flat and sheer rock faces as it wound its way up the hill. The road is still being used, with tourist operators ferrying people across the lake to buses that wait at the power station end, and then drive over the pass to Deep Cove and on to Doubtful Sound. Work on the tailrace tunnel was started from the Deep Cove end. It was to be 10 kilometres long and 9 metres in diameter. The Prime Minister, Keith Holyoke, officially kicked off the process by firing the first shot of explosives on February the 4th, 1964. 1,200 metres of tunnel was completed that year, and more than 1,600 metres in 1965. To quote from a pamphlet detailing the construction of the project, drilling and clearing the debris were done by simple mechanical methods at first, and trucks were used to remove spoil. But later a railway system was laid, and more advanced tunnelling techniques were used, enabling the work to be done quicker. It was meant to have been completed by September of 1966, but there were serious delays caused by broken rock and large amounts of water, especially after the tunnel went below sea level. In February of 1966, the contract was extended out till January 1968. There was only 1,200 metres done in 1966, and Utah tried to get out of their contract. After much negotiation, in October 1966, the contract was extended again, with completion now set for July of 1969. 2.7 kilometres of progress was made in 1967, and the tunnel was holed through on October 22, 1968, more than two years late. The tailrace tunnel was completed in August of 1969 after being lined with concrete. The home for around 500 of the workers working on the tailrace tunnel and the Wilmot Pass Road was the former cruise liner, the Wanganella. The ship had a fascinating history, which, if you'll allow me a couple of minutes, I'd like to briefly divert into. The Wanganella was a passenger liner, built in Belfast in 1929, it was initially destined for Africa, but the company that was meant to receive it had financial difficulties, so it was bought by a Melbourne company in 1932 and put into service on the Trans-Tasman passenger route, starting in early 1933. It was a luxurious mode of travel, regularly connecting Sydney and Melbourne to Auckland and Wellington. On one of these voyages in 1935, someone wrote a message on the back of a dining menu, stuck it in a bottle and threw it overboard. The bottle was discovered around 1960 on Fraser Island off the coast of Queensland. It was found by a 16-year-old, Jack Howlett. They attempted to contact the address written on the note, but had no luck. Almost 60 years later, Jack rediscovered the note when he was moving house, and his son Kent took up the cause of trying to locate the note's authors, the Hare family, who listed their address as, quote, the largest inland city of the Commonwealth, Ballarat. The note included the menu from the day before the bottle was thrown overboard, September 11th, 1935. This included a puree of oysters, boiled Canadian salmon, curried lobster, and baked coconut custard. But when the Second World War broke out, the days of decadence were over for the Wanganella. 
it was brought into the service of the Australian Navy and worked as a hospital ship, mainly in the Pacific Theatre, though it also visited the Middle East. It returned to the Trans-Tasman passenger route following the war, but on its maiden journey it ran aground on Barrett Reef in Wellington Harbour. All the passengers were successfully evacuated, but the ship remained breached on the rocks for 18 days, through an unusually calm stretch of Wellington weather. When the Wahine ran aground on the same reef 21 years later, the result was not as fortunate. The ship played a role in the 1951 waterfront dispute, carrying money and manpower from the Australian unions across the Tasman. However, air travel across the ditch was the end for trans-Tasman passenger sailing. It was sold for scrap in 1960, but metal prices dropped before it had been taken apart, so it was returned to service. With a need to accommodate hundreds of men in one of the most remote, wet and underdeveloped parts of the country, it was acquired and put to use as a floating hotel. It arrived in Deep Cove in 1963 and remained there until 1969. The vessel was notorious for the drinking culture aboard. Popular legend had it that when the ship was to be towed away, the tugs struggled to dislodge the ship from the bed of empty beer cans that had been tossed overboard. According to James Balich, during the construction of the Manapori power station and its associated works between 1963 and 1971, the 11,000-ton Wanganella was moored in Deep Cove, Fiordland, to house the workforce. 14 of the work- workers died in industrial accidents on the project, and others comforted themselves with 183-proof bootleg liquor. It was sold for scrap a second time in 1970, but had to be towed out of doubtful sound as it couldn't move under its own steam. It was towed to Hong Kong, and then on to Taiwan, where it was eventually demolished. As well as issues with the tunnelling, there were also labour issues that came to a head in 1965. Utah wouldn't guarantee the workers on the powerhouse cabin re-employment. In response, the tunnellers went on strike. On the 30th of August, the consortium working on the access tunnel terminated their contract, with just 13 metres of the 2130 metre tunnel remaining. There were two unions operating on the site, the New Zealand Workers' Union and the Labourers' Union, and as there were two sites, West Arm and Deep Cove, and many different contractors, the two unions fought for coverage. The Workers' Union, with the support from the Federation of Labour, won the right to cover the entire Deep Cove workforce. They wanted the same at West Arm, but the Labourers' Union weren't going to roll over. It went to the arbitration court, which recommended a secret ballot. The workers' union gained majority support in the ballot, and eventually a West Arm Combined Unions Association was formed to negotiate with Utah. But workplace tensions never entirely went away. While labour relations were challenging, so were the actual work conditions. 18 men died on site during construction. First aid was available on site, but if the injury was serious, they had to be evacuated by air to Invercargill, by which time it might be too late. Tunnelling was particularly dangerous. Men were hit by trains moving material in the tunnels, and others by falling rocks or during drilling operations. One man died after he was accidentally blown up after he made a dash to catch the launch at West Arm so he could make it to the races at nearby Riverton. However, he unfortunately made his move at the same time as a rock detonation on the Wilmot Pass Road. In 1967, when there were more than a thousand men on site, there were 84 serious accidents at Deep Cove. 123 at West Arm, and another 16 in the men working on the transmission lines. The remote location was a challenge for constructing the power station, but also for building the power lines that would transmit the power it generated. 
West Arm had to be connected to Bluff, which meant 170 kilometres of line, with 48 of those going through bush-clad mountain country. In June of 1966, the electricity department began the process of putting up the lines. The route traversed high altitudes with long spans across mountain valleys and was subject to extreme conditions including strong winds, ice and salt corrosion. The last piece of the station to cover is the powerhouse, which Utah won the contract to construct in June of 1965. 200 metres below the ground, it was to consist of a chamber 110 metres long, 18 metres wide and 39 metres tall, all hewn out of solid rock. The dig started in 1966, with a tunnel created along the roof line, then widened out to the width of the chamber. Next, it was excavated down in steps, until a suitably large chamber was completed. The above ground control building was started in 1968, and soon the first four turbines were installed in the powerhouse. Following the completion of the tail race tunnel, the first power was generated at Manapori on the 14th of September 1969. Of course, while the construction of the dam was proceeding in fits and starts, the controversy around the levels of the lake grew and grew. The government had to guarantee a continuous supply to Camelco, and could meet the agreement without raising the lake level. However, this would mean that the Crown would receive much less power from their units at the power station. In July of 1966, Tom Shand, the Minister of Electricity, announced that Lake Manapori would not exceed 620 feet above sea level and would probably be between 600 and 610 feet. This was compared to initial levels of up to 670 feet. As the project got closer to completion, opposition to raising the lake level got stronger. The example of what had happened at Monowai, where the lake was raised just 8 feet, was close by. The cost of clearing the bush around the edge of Lake Manapori was put at $6.5 million, a figure that Camelco balked at. The Nature Conservation Council met at Tiano in February 1967 and reaffirmed that in their view the lake should not be raised. Newspapers were now full of protest as groups like Forest and Bird supported a campaign of people writing letters to the editor, the angry Facebook posts of the age. In October 1969 about 10 concerned members of the public met at the house of Norman Jones in Invercargill and resolved to start the Save Manapori Committee. In the January following, a meeting of the SMC, the Save Manapori Committee, in Wellington resolved to form branches all around the country. Leading the group was Southland sheep farmer Ron McLean. He set out on a national tour to raise public awareness of the issue. In the same month, aware of the rising political pressure, Cabinet appointed a ministerial committee to look into the raising of the lake and announced a commission of inquiry. This committee was made up of the heads of the Ministries of Electricity, Works, the Department of Industrial and Scientific Research, aka DSIR, Treasury, Lands, Tourism and Publicity, the Forest Service and the Solicitor General. The Cabinet Committee reported in April on the lake levels, generation capacity, Camelco's rights under the agreement, the consequences of raising Lake Monopori and the costs of not doing so. The Commission of Inquiry was set up in April of 1970 and reported back in October. It didn't do a huge amount to resolve the growing division, confirming the Crown's obligations to Camelco to raise the lake. Any change to the agreement might result in significant financial penalties. The SMC had a national conference in Wellington in March of 1970, with representations made from more than 50 organisations. The Labour opposition were in a difficult position. Having been in government when the original development proposal was signed in 1960, and helping to pass the 1963 Act without any dissent from the opposition, 
they had initially supported the development. However, Kirk could see the mood of the nation and started to swing the Labour Party behind the growing opposition movement. A second petition was organised by Forrest and Bird and delivered to Parliament in December with more than 250,000 signatures. In fact, there were 264,907 signatures, close to one out of every 10 New Zealanders. A parliamentary select committee was set up to respond to this and other petitions, and in June 1971 it recommended that the petitions should receive favourable recommendation. At the same time, the select committee recommended that the dam at Mararoa should be built with wide enough support to allow it to support a much higher dam, so they were clearly planning for an increase in lake levels down the track. The growing discontent about raising the lake levels meant that it affected politics at the national level and eventually led to the end of one of New Zealand's longest-running governments and the election of the brief but radical third Labour government of Norm Kirk. In November 1969, Norm Kirk's Labour Party lost the general election to National. It was Kirk's second loss since he rose to the role in 1965, but the party still had confidence in him. Just a month after the election, National MP Tom Shand died suddenly at the age of 58. He was both Minister of Labour and Electricity during the Manapore project and had helped smooth out some of the Labour disputes. Shand was the MP for Marlborough, where he had defeated the Labour candidate Ian Brooks by 2,460 votes in the 1969 general election. His death triggered a by-election to be held the following February. Labour again selected Brooks, while Tom Shand's son Anthony was chosen as his father's replacement. The result was one of the most remarkable for any by-election in New Zealand history, with a 17.5% swing to Labour, with Brooks getting 3,300 more votes than he had just three months previously. Kirk campaigned strongly in support of Brooks, and it was the first time he had raised Labour's opposition to the flooding of Manapori. The applause that he received from audiences in the electorate showed him that it was a controversial issue, even in what had traditionally been a very conservative seat. While it wasn't the only factor in the win, it showed Kirk that it was an issue that had broad popular appeal, and Labour built on the rising opposition to Manapori as they headed towards the 1972 election. As that election got closer, Labour made the environment their second priority, after economic issues. A promise not to raise Lake Manapori was key to this. Electorates at the bottom of the South Island, close to the lake, was seen as strategic and potentially winnable. This became a key part of Labour's path to victory at the 1972 election, which was, remember, conducted under the old first-past-the-post system, with no party voting. As part of his trip around the South Island in the 72 campaign, Kirk spent a 17-hour day in the Otago Central electorate, giving speeches in Lawrence, Ettrick, Millers Flat, Cromwell, Arrowtown and Queenstown. Two days before polling day, he flew to Invercargill. Both Invercargill and the neighbouring seat of Awarua were being targeted by Labour. He spoke for almost two hours to a packed hall of 1,000 people, with Manapori being a central point. National's Jack Marshall, who had taken over from Holyoke as national leader and prime minister in February of 1972, continued to stick with the line of his predecessor. Marshall reiterated that National would go ahead with raising the lake, and just days before the election, Percy Allen, the Minister of Works, said that as far as he was concerned, Manapori would be raised with, quote, no messing about. The differences between the two parties were stark. National were in favour of raising the lake, while Labour took the side of the environmentalists and the growing number of Kiwis who were opposed to it. 
Kirk called the possibility of raising the lake a truly disastrous conservation problem and reiterated his promise that Labour would not touch the lake under any circumstances. Kirk's Labour won in a landslide, winning 56 seats to 31 on election night, though Wellington Central switched back to national after special votes were counted. They swept the bottom of the South Island, picking up Invercargill, Awarua and Otago Central, only missing out on the seat of Wallace, which national, under the names of Wallace and then Clutha Southland, have never lost since they started contesting elections. After the election, Jack Marshall conceded that environmental issues had cost the party those seats. Kirk realised the importance of the campaign to his success. He sent a photo of Manapori to all of the volunteers who had worked on the campaign and included with each one an eight-line poem that he had written himself. More than beauty, the soil from which we sprang, source of our sustenance, provider of our shelter, a place of peace midst soaring splendour, for us to use and hold in trust, the place where we belong, our land. New Zealand. Following Labour's landslide win, Tom McGugan was made Minister of Electricity. In early December, he stated that the lake would not be raised, a continuation of Labour's campaign policy, but the first time it had been said by the relevant minister. In February of 1973, Kirk and his cabinet agreed that the lake wouldn't be raised, and formed the Guardians of the Lake. The Guardians was a group of local people who were appointed by Kirk to devise guidelines for the lake's management. These included Dr. Alan Mark, Ron McLean, Les Hutchins, Wilson Campbell, Jim McFarlane and John Moore. This poacher turned gamekeeper model was the first time such an arrangement had been used in this country, putting the campaigners inside the tent. The Guardians continued to monitor lake levels and were concerned that there was a lack of protection enshrined in the law. Kirk died in office in 1974 and Robert Muldoon's National won the 1975 election. They started to renegotiate terms with Comelco. As long as the supply of electricity was continuous, it didn't matter where the government supplied it from. The Guardian sent draft legislation to the government in March of 1977. In December that year, the government started renegotiations with Comelco, with the resulting Manapori Tiano Development Amendment Act passed in 1981. This finally enshrined protections against raising the lake levels in law after a campaign that had lasted more than 20 years. Almost as soon as construction was finished, engineers realised that there was a problem that prevented the station from running at its maximum capacity. Friction between the water and the walls of the tailrace tunnel caused a loss of hydraulic head and meant that less water could be driven through the turbines. If the turbines were to be run at their full capacity, then the tail race wasn't large enough to take the water off the turbines fast enough, which would have resulted in the powerhouse being flooded. This didn't happen, but it meant that the station had to be run at about 85% of maximum capacity. With other stations like Clyde Dam coming online, this wasn't really a problem in the short term. In 1997, the government approved plans for a second tail race tunnel, with construction starting in 1998. It cost about $212 million and was completed in 2001. A refurbishment of the turbines was also undertaken, which boosted the amount that each turbine could generate to 121.5 megawatts, raising the total generation of Manapori to about 840 megawatts. However, the resource consent for the station only allows for 800 megawatts to be produced. The main user of this power is, of course, TY Point Aluminium Smelter, which takes about 620 megawatts. The development of the Manapori power scheme 
and its fortune since has been intimately tied to the TY Point aluminium smelter. The aluminium smelter and its need for a constant supply of a huge amount of power was the main driver that saw the project get off the ground. The negotiations between the government and the various companies backing the scheme were complicated, but in September 1969, an agreement was reached between Kamelco and two Japanese interests, Showa Aluminium KK and Suitomo Aluminium, to build a smelter at TY Point. Once the agreement was reached, progress was fast. Construction began later that year, and the first aluminium was produced at TY Point in April of 1971. The smelter uses the Hall-Hero process to convert alumina to elemental aluminium. It has four lines of pots, the fourth of which has been shut down for long periods when world aluminium prices are low. Over the last 25 years, the price for a ton of aluminium in US dollars has been as high as $3,000 a ton and as low as about half that. The smelter employs around 1,000 people, with 1,600 more employed indirectly in the wider Southland economy as a result. The owner of the smelter, Rio Tinto, has repeatedly threatened to close the smelter with the loss of all of those jobs a very real threat. Rio Tinto are one of the richest mining companies in the world, but have still managed to use this position to extract concessions and cash from the New Zealand government. In 2020, they announced that the smelter would close if the government didn't step in to make it more economically viable, and this time, the government called their bluff. While the Labour Party did announce plans to try and delay the closure by a few years so the workforce could transition into new roles, it does look as though after 50 years, the smelter will finally shut up shop in the next few years. The question of what happens to the 15% of New Zealand's electricity that it uses is still up in the air and will be something that politicians, environmentalists and engineers will have to resolve. There have been many suggestions, including giant data centres and encouraging a more rapid shift towards an electric vehicle fleet. But the big issue is that Manapori's power is generated in a part of the country that is furthest from the places that need it most. If this power can be utilised with new transmission lines or schemes such as pumped hydro, then the closure of TY Point may mean that Manapori, the project that launched the environmental movement in this country, may play a significant role in decarbonising our energy sector. The importance of Manapori to the rise of the environmental movement can't be overstated. In fact, environmental historian Dr Catherine Knight called her history of environmental politics in this country beyond Manapori to show that this was the stepping off point, but it was a movement that also tied to a number of other popular changes in the 60s and 70s. The landslide win of Norm Kirk's Labour Party in 1972 owed much to his co-option of the Manapori campaign, but also involving a younger generation in politics who would continue to agitate even after National returned to power in 1975 on issues such as the Springbok tour, nuclear weapons, Māori rights and homosexual law reform. For the government, either National or Labour, Manapori was the start of the pushback from the community about environmental and heritage issues. It wasn't as easy for the state to just do what they wanted to anymore, as they would see with the ongoing struggles around the Clyde Dam, which we will talk about in the next episode. The public expected to be consulted with around these projects, and often objected. This was the start of a shift between seeing nature as something that man needed to dominate and extract resources from, towards living with and in it. That's it for this episode. 
Hopefully the gap between this and the next one won't be as long as last time. Dam the River was written, researched, recorded and produced by me, James McBeth Dam, mainly at my kitchen bench 